Welcome to the Masculinity Podcast, conversations about masculinity, men, and our relationships with them. My name's Mel, and I invite you to pop the kettle on, make a mug of your hot beverage of choice, and join us for a relaxed and open conversation. So today on the Masculinity Podcast, I'm very pleased to have my friend Khan with me. Khan has been a community builder and facilitator of various different kinds of community events. He has a background as an EDM DJ, but is also a professional uh, software engineer and does a lot of work to support social justice, consent education, alternative relationship models, and more recently has been taking a journey in learning burlesque. And um, I'm really excited to have Khan here today. Thank you, Mel. I remember you and I having a conversation walking around the waterfront, talking about the experiences of growing up in cultures that were not Canada. And, you know, a lot of the people I've talked to on the podcast so far, not all, but but certainly quite a few, are people who've uh, grown up experiencing the Canadian or North American model of masculinity. So I was wondering if you could uh, maybe talk a little bit more about like what was your what was your culture of origin and what were the stories that you were given around the expectations of of masculinity for yourself? Definitely uh, not exactly the same as as here, but there's a lot of root elements that are similar in terms of men expected to repress their emotions and those kind of things, right? But um, uh, there's a different flavor of uh, repression, you know, in a way that uh, is different from the Western culture, right? So both of my parents are from Bangladesh, uh, which, you know, if we go back even to the beginning of the 70s decade, they were going through uh, a lot of trauma in terms of war. Even my you know, own parents have gone through the trauma of the independence war in the beginning of the 70s, right? 1971 is where Bangladesh became independent from Pakistan. And um, I have my parents recounting stories about how there was genocide and persecution going on, even in their, you know, when they were young adults, right, around that time. Uh, so there is a lot of uh, trauma and then also, you know, uh, Islamic values because Bangladesh is uh, predominantly Muslim. That gave a really kind of um, mixture of you know, a, a background where you know, they're coming from that made them very, very protective of building a brighter future for their children, you know, as um, mm-hmm. case in point myself, right? And so when I came into this world, they moved away from Bangladesh, feeling like it was too overcrowded and not enough of a chance for kids to uh, be able to be supported with uh, all of the resources that they had available to them. So both of my parents, you know, migrated over to Libya, which is a North African country, where because of you know, oil and uh, uh, you know, life was a little bit easier in terms of from their perspective, right? And so, I grew up um, as a almost like an expat uh, in Libya, but inside of a bubble of 
Bangladeshi culture uh, because there were a lot of other Bangladeshi people there. So uh, all of my friends when I was growing up younger was uh, from Bangladesh. and uh, But then with Libya, we had the Islamic values in common. So uh, when I was growing up in Libya, there was this strict Islamic kind of background of, you know, of the, the thing that stands out the most for me is uh, as a man, you are always to follow the code of modesty and not date women uh, until you're getting married or whatever. And then also even like looking women in the eye was a sinful thing, right? Anyone that's not part of your family. That, you know, I didn't realize how deeply that affected me as I was growing up and tried to integrate into culture over here, right? By the time I was about uh, 16 or so, that's when political situation and opportunities in Libya were getting worse and worse. And again, my parents decided to immigrate to a different place uh, with the goal of, again, providing a safe and sound environment for their kids to grow up in. Uh, so we immigrated uh, to Canada uh, and to Vancouver, uh, exactly, right? And um, it could have as easily been Australia as well, because my dad applied there and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the point system of immigration, got by chance, got into Canada. So I just uh, think of how fortunate I've been in terms of, you know, hopping between different cultures. And uh, one of the things I think we talked about on that walk is that having so many cultures kind of predominantly around you and growing up, it it makes you realize that culture is all made up by people, right? And not take things as seriously. And that's kind of what has, um, like having all of these different experiences of like, oh, uh, Bangladeshis do culture in this way, Libyans do cultures in this way, and then having moved to Canada and upfront experiencing a completely different culture, there's something deep down inside of me. I was like, oh, well, I mean, this is all made up. So I'm just going to pick and choose my path into what makes sense from these cultures. Wow. I love what you just said there. That Yeah, the, the cultures are, their scripts, their stories. And it's so liberating to get to a place where you get to pick and choose. I, thank you for mentioning as well that code of modesty that exists. You know, I, I spent years living in the Middle East, and I remember seeing that unspoken code of modesty that was applied to men. And, you know, I think that in the West, there's a lot of conversation about how there's a lot imposed on women in uh, Muslim countries and in the Middle East. And very rarely do they realize that there there's also impositions for men, maybe not to the same extreme, but I remember one of my dad's work colleagues could not shake my hand, even though I was a 14 year old girl, you know, because I was not a woman who was related to him. And, uh, and I know that the interpretations vary a lot, but, and that's probably one of the more extremes, but yeah, like not being able to look people in the eye and you have to dress a certain way as well as a as a man in in um, in the Middle East. Yeah, it's definitely different and not as um, intense in terms of the uh, severity of like suffering for men versus women. But um, you know, it it kind of it's like a juxtaposition of like you have these desires and wants like you know human bodies are built with hormones and all of this and especially in puberty right like you you want to 
talk to that girl that's really cute on the bus on your field trip. But then there's this whole cultural social programming that's like stopping you from doing that. So even if you do break through and go and talk to that girl, uh, there's all this guilt and shame that is gnawing at you. So what what did you do when you had that crush on that girl on the school bus? <laughs> well, 99.99% of the time, I would just, you know, have that in my head and kind of suffer through it. You know, like, I've, I've always been, you know, my heart has always been this, like, uh, I see someone and I have this intense crush and that hasn't changed. It's still mm-hmm. the same, right? And, but... It, on the outside, my actions are usually you want to let that person know that, hey, you're cool or cute, and I am I think so, right? And uh, that would, ne- you know, most of the time never happen, right? And when it did, like the two or three times that I can remember between my, you know, up till I was uh, in my 20s, it was like a big earth-shattering event because, you know, the those feelings were so in- intense that I would have to break through all of those all of those things that held me back. And I, you know, I always attributed that stuff to being shy, but as I've been doing a lot of my work uh, over my 30s, I realized that it's there, deep underneath there's all this, um, you know, shame tapes that are mm-hmm. playing through my head that prevents me from, and, you know, that can easily be construed as being shy, but it's actually, there's a lot going on underneath. Um, yeah, so... Usually I would not do anything about it, but then there would be times where I would somehow break through that and there would be like a grand gesture of like handing them a note. I mean, that that would be a grand gesture in my world, right? And uh, telling them how I feel. And then usually nothing would happen from that because, you know, you can't date people anyways. So It must have been such a culture shock to come to Canada and be in a place where some of these scripts don't exist. and women are perhaps more open to uh, expressions of interest. Like, how did you, like, what was that like to, to suddenly, I imagine it wasn't necessarily an instant revelation. Oh, don't we? <laughs> no, um, uh, after I moved to Canada, like, the the funny thing is, like, I, I didn't know a lot about uh, Western culture from, you know, media, right? Even living uh, or growing up in Northern Africa. But um, having moved here, um, in my head, it was, uh, you know, always like movies and books that I had read. But translating that to like acting, it took me a long time because I, I remember I went to grade 11 as soon as we moved here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because academically I was quite further advanced, uh, so it was like easy for me to just... Uh, coast through high school the last couple of years without doing much studying because I already knew that stuff uh, from having gone to the English um, kind of education system where I was growing up in Libya. But so that was a little bit of a boon that gave me some extra uh, time to kind of try to readjust to the culture over here. Yeah, I mean, in my, uh, in grade 11 and 12, I didn't really I didn't really have any um, any kind of relationships with women other than friendships, right? And I just was going through like re- realigning myself with like, oh wow, this is a thing, and it's encouraged for people to uh, 
uh, you know, date and connect and all of those things. But it was more of observation mode. And I still have had all of those, you know, shame tapes and all of that uh, going through my head. So I, what, I noticed that one of the biggest uh, catalysts for me in my, you know, early 20s was where I felt like I belonged for the first time was when I first went, started to go to university. And then I got into the rave scene in Vancouver, mm-hmm. right? And it's just so funny to kind of attribute that as a point of growth. But what happened for me is uh, because in the rave culture, uh, there is this kind of underlying principle of uh, plur, which is like the peace, love, unity, and respect. So everyone was seen as equal. And, uh, you know, there was also... Um, some drugs involved that was help <laughs> helpful in the therapy process that now that I look back like for example MDMA is a great uh, social lubricator right where uh, you can leave those inhibitions behind and actually be truly yourself uh, so there's a lot of those experiences that kind of help me come out of my shell and be who I really am behind all of that cultural programming that I had mm-hmm. going on. That's something that I you know, attribute to from being a very shy and reserved person to being the gregarious and outgoing and social person that I am right now. That was the transformation that started uh, during the, the phase where I was uh, kind of integrating into the rave culture uh, in Vancouver and uh, Seattle. Kind of that's where I mostly went back and forth. And that kind of brought... The, set the tone for the rest of my uh, journey up to here as well in terms of being really open-minded and working on myself and learning about all of the things that are uh, you know in different phases right like um, uh, with with that rave culture uh, that's where I that was where I first had my girlfriend uh, my very first girlfriend that was like you know a three-month relationship or something like that that happened i think in when i was 20 or 21 probably and then subsequently yeah it was actually mostly at uh in in the electronic music dance community that i you know connected with people and uh my very first uh long-term relationship uh happened in that context as well where i you know, dated someone and moved in with them for about four years or so in my uh, oh. mid twenties. Hey, rave, rave culture—it kind of makes sense to me because rave culture is sort of the antithesis mm-hmm. of conservative religious culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it was um, such a melting pot of like it didn't matter what culture you were from or where you were from. We were there for the music and the connection to all. You know, like uh, now that I look back, right, it's like when you go to dance at a festival, right, what we're really going for is when everyone is moving to the same beat, there's this inherent connection between the whole crowd that happens, right? And you're all, you know, there for the same goal of like uh, getting into this trance with the music and your body movement, right? And that's something that has influenced me in so many, so many different ways in terms of, it's it's almost, you know, like a form of meditation, right? Where you're not really in your head as much, uh, more you're just, you know, being with the body and the music, uh, how things are going. And you're synchronized with sometimes tens of thousands of people in an arena or like a couple hundred people. And uh, 
that meditative experience is where my when I wanted to give back to that community it was that's where my being a DJ kind of motivation came from right and mm-hmm. that has uh, stuck with me to this day and you know I mean you probably being a organizer of dance temple events you, you know all about that right I do I can relate to that <laughs> Yeah. Um yeah, I'm I'm curious to actually hear it sounded like we had some sort of parallel journeys and I'm curious to hear like what role music and um you know festival or rave culture played in your uh, journey so far as well. Yeah. I mean, I, having grown up in the Middle East, we have a lot of the similar kind of cultural um stories and shame. Like I didn't I I dated in high school, but I didn't really have any kind of serious relationship until I was in my twenties. Like I was a virgin until I was 20 and, um, and and look at me now. And, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, I, I always loved Middle Eastern music and I had tried partying when I was at university and I never really got into it. And it wasn't until my late twenties, I went to see Adam Shake play at the Roberts Creek Community Hall, which is a wonderful, like renovated barn type community hall space. And and Adam Shake will mix Middle Eastern and Arabic style and Indian style beats with um, with modern electronica, and it blew me away. It was the first time in years that I felt like I could actually be in my body. And I, and I think that was huge. And I still, to this day, um, I'm unpacking, like, what what is the power behind that? Um, mm-hmm. in, in undoing some of those stories around shame. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I feel so fortunate to have kind of run into that whole electronic music scene and I attribute so much of my transformation from, you know, this confused young adult that I was to finally being somewhat embodied and understanding a lot of what was going on with my sexuality and myself and kind of coming to my own power over the last couple of decades, right? Yeah. You mentioned the, these shame tapes that would play in your head, the shame stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what were they centered on what was the story yeah i guess um i mean i can give you a clear example of um you know i have a pretty strained relationship uh, with my dad because of these cultural differences mm-hmm. right um and when you ask that question it's basically you know my dad's voice playing through my head which i can easily recall because i just had a conversation with him the night before last night and you know just giving you context, I had a 10-year um, relationship, you know, that was mostly monogamous for the first half, and it was like a marriage-like relationship, and I have a kid out of that uh, relationship that we uh, share, and in a, about a year and a bit ago, uh, we consciously changed that relationship to be separated, but still co-parents and friends, um, and uh, also, you know, I'm in terms of my kids and you know, the way that we bring up, uh, brought up our kid is an alternative way where we're uh, homeschooling or unschooling. And then also uh, in terms of almost from their birth, all of the things that we did was unconventional in terms of not following the script of society and figuring out 
by research and uh, experience from other people um, how that all works out. So in in terms of the conversation with my dad, he uh, you know he was telling me how life with uh, without getting married is a path of ruin. You know, in the context of where I'm at right now, uh, you know I'm. I'm poly and have a couple of relationships uh, at the moment, and uh, you know I I don't even t- tell him about that part, but I've just the moment he knows that I have a girlfriend and that I'm not planning on getting married anytime because you know I'm not really that attached to the institution of marriage myself, right? And so the conversation That's huge <laughs> conversation I had with my dad, which didn't even involve myself in terms of like I wasn't telling him what was going on for me we were talking about somebody else and I was asking uh, asking him how they're doing and he was talking about how my brother's uh, sister-in-law was you know just had a boyfriend for a long time and they're basically exactly to quote him they're going down the path of ruin in western culture where they are you know just free mixing and um, not you know, settling down and getting married. And there's a lot more behind that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's just like one little tip of an iceberg of so many other things that everything from like uh, drinking and, you know, even uh, drugs are something that I don't talk to my parents about, but that's uh, something that's an important aspect of my journey so far, right? And uh, all of those things are even off limits in our conversation. But I know every t- every time in in my early twenties when I had you know gone to a rave or had um, you know experienced some psychedelic experience or something like that, there's always the shame tapes of your you know, committing a sin or some, you know, some, some derivation of that. That's the shame tape that's going on. You're going down the path of ruin. (laughs) Exactly. You're basically, there would be something like, you know, you're going to be living on the streets and an addict or some, some, some derivation of that from every circumstance from like, you know, dropping out of school and changing my career path to doing what I wanted all the way to relationships and not getting married and all of these things are paths uh, to destruction, you know, from, from his point, uh, worldview. You know, you, you've done something that's not easy for people to do. Breaking away from cultural constructs, breaking away from familial expectations, and not just breaking away, but like boldly stepping to a completely different paradigm. And I, I just want to honor and acknowledge that that takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to gamble, to take that risk and to do it. Because I, I can definitely relate to that, like your parents' voice in your head telling you off at every step <laughs> of the way. But, you know, to do that in spite of that, that voice in the head is quite an achievement. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And uh, it's... Uh... You know, it's been my life journey to dig deeper and work through all of those things that hold me back. And, you know, uh, and there's things that, you know, we talked about dating and relationships and all of that, but there's also shadow stuff about how, you know, the the underlying things in even when you are are married and like living life in a way that kind of works with both cultures right where 
if if I go back to my earlier relationship, 10-year relationship that where, where I, we separated recently, the main reason that I jumped into that relationship that fast and deep was because of cultural pressure, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I met my partner, uh, surprise, surprise, as a, at a music festival, and we were, you know, head over heels for each other. But if there wasn't this cultural background and pressure of trying to please both sides of like, okay, I'm in love with this person and I want to move in with them and, you know, be, you know, fully in relationship with them. Uh, but also I've, I've always been diplomatic and tried to incorporate my family values and, you know, bring my family along for the ride at yeah, at those crucial junctures of my life, right, where I'm trying to incorporate both sides of my myself because Bengali culture is really rich and there's amazing things as well, right? It's not just repression and that stuff, but there's so many so many other aspects to it. So I in order to be able to bring both sides together, one of the decisions that I made was within like three months of knowing my partner, I decided that I would get married to her uh, to include my family and friends because I was also moving away from Vancouver over to Victoria to be with this uh, partner that I so because it was such a departure I needed to make a grand gesture to my family that yeah I think this is important enough that I will bring this person into my family and mm-hmm. get married uh, married to her and then and then move away to Victoria and start our life together if it wasn't for that cultural pressure i probably wouldn't have gotten married as fast and you know simmered in that relationship for a while to figure out whether this was uh you know something that should last for a decade or uh, something that kind of ebb and flows by itself right Mm -hmm. and so uh and it was interesting because we got uh, married only in the muslim cultural context like we didn't actually sign legal marriage documents that are legal in Canada. So we were essentially common law, but we did the uh, ceremony and all of that, that that was part of uh, Bangladeshi and Muslim culture. Huh. Interesting. And so that's, that's something that I had, yeah, hadn't thought about as much, but that, you know, having to make sure that my family was on board and happy, you know, was the main reason because at the time when, when that happened, I was like, well, I love this person with all my heart and they love me back what does it matter when we get married like we could just do that to like you know make sure everything is good and then you know continue on with our life so you were already questioning relationship norms right from early on it sounds yeah i mean um you know this is kind of like my personality from as early as i can remember in like in religious class i would ask all of the really hard questions to the to the teacher that would have a hard time answering right and i would like but why is this and this and this you know and so that has translated in later in my life to like questioning all of the ways that people do things right and then picking and choosing instead of going with the norm and same thing with monogamy right like i i had i mean granted i was introduced to the idea uh, by my partner. But as soon as I heard the idea, I was like, oh, okay, there's other ways than monogamy. That's really amazing. Um, and 
and then I just went into like learning about all of that and kind of slowly realizing that that's where alternative relationship styles is where where I would be happiest, right? And you know that's the next phase I think of huge shift in growth that I had. Different people have different vehicles of growth, right? And I I think uh, being involved in non-monogamy has been the shift in my 30s, right? So I t- we talked about in my 20s, it was um, it was working with uh, you know and accepting uh, rave culture that um, helped in my transition, and then in my 30s, it was uh, actually examining non-monogamy and all the things that come with that emotional processing and uh, learning about how to look underneath your emotions and you know work with that and all of that stuff and communication for example like uh, when when we started i wasn't the best communicator right and i had passive aggressive tendencies and all of that stuff came up while you know when you're uh, navigating uh, non-monogamous relationships you have all of that bubble up to the surface and you have to deal with it otherwise you can't yeah. continue and so uh, that was the really almost for me it's like a spiritual growth process of like really examining all of those aspects of your life and instead of sweeping things under the rug kind of bringing out all the dirt and dealing with it and processing them and putting them in the right places (laughs) in your heart uh, kind of thing it sounds like that journey is taking you into a really awesome place of diving more into sexuality and expression of that you have been taking burlesque classes. <laughs> yep. Um, so what's been happening is um, in my relationship with my partner in in this ten year relationship, we've been diving into you know non monogamy and some kink as well, and this and then you know I I personally discovered how much. Uh, you know, going back to how much sexuality had been repressed and how much of my reactions and how I connect with people are dictated by those things in my childhood that I was taught how to be in society, right? And those those things are really so under the subconscious, right? Uh, while growing up, like, I think in one way, it's you know, when I think about it, in one way, it's like it's a defense mechanism, a cultural defense mechanism, so that uh, men are not committing injustice against women in terms of you know the how in the Western culture and the extreme side of uh, Eastern culture as well. There's like the rape culture stuff, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so like a lot of this cultural safeguard is like taking a hammer and beating down any possibility of of having rape culture come out yeah. right uh, so in the western culture because of it being so open and you know there's the opposite problem of uh, men being emotionally and sometimes physically violent against uh, women everything from like you know dating interactions to feeling like it's their it's their right to a women's body or whatever it might be right uh, i see the culture that I grew up in, because it swung completely the other way, like those safeguards of uh, not looking at a woman and all of that has been put in place so that that kind of stuff can't happen. Like you're kind of culturally, morally, and religiously suppressed from being being inappropriate with with women, right? It's the the logic seems to be let's take away any kind of temptation. Yeah. 
and there and by taking away the temptation will take away that dark behavior exactly but what it doesn't take into account is the all of the subtlety and nuance of how that stuff can be played out healthily right with mm-hmm. with the right uh, negotiated consent and the uh, right things in place there's this whole huge world of pleasure and you know amazing human interaction that you're missing out on right and so my journey in the last 5 to 8 years has been non-monogamy leading to exploring uh, sexuality in you know working on those deep-seated repressions and that has brought me to the journey of you know really examining uh, in the last couple of years I've taken it to like my my selfish goal was uh, to really I felt like even after doing all this work I wasn't embodying my sexuality like we're wearing it outwardly in a graceful and comfortable manner right i it would i would still like you know internally and mentally i was there where you know i would if i was you know in a social situation and i wanted to outwardly display my sexuality in a way that's uh acceptable i i just kind of you know became a awkward duck and didn't know how to do that right so so in in my journey to kind of embody my sexuality, I realized it just goes so deep, right? And so I, I was working on having a therapist that was a somatic, like the the working with your body in sexuality, a somatic sex work, right? Uh, that the ther- therapist was going through uh, with me. And at the same time, my partner, uh, my current partner, one of my current partners uh, was on her own journey of taking their belly dance practice and going into burlesque. And when they started taking the burlesque classes with uh, Rosie Bits over here in Victoria and noticed the journey that I was going through. They were like, oh, you really need to do this, this class. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. It was something that really scared me because, you know, I never wanted to really like be that public with my sexuality. It was just like a thing that was I was working on on my own, right? But because it scared me and made me uh, nervous, I was like, oh, maybe this is a place of growth that I need to explore uh, because, you know, you only have huge growth spurts when you are going out, out of your comfort zone. I started um, going into Rosie's classes and uh, that was uh, earlier on this year in January, I think I started and it became such a different thing than I than I realized, right? We dive so deep into like body image and uh, into kind of embodying sexuality in a way that it's it's a service to the world, right? Instead of, it's not a performance like, ooh, look at me. It was more like, hey, I'm here being my authentic self and you can look at me and get whatever you want from that, like a participatory event for both the audience and myself. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the intermediate class right now. And uh, one of the juiciest things that we're working on is kind of taking the ego out of the equation and making it that so that as performers, we're going on to stage as a service to the world, right, in terms of bringing healthy 
sexuality and displaying it in a way that inspires and gives different things that people need to see at the time. I've heard such amazing things about Rosie Bitt's classes and and most of the most of her students are female identifying or um, female bodied uh, humans. Um, she, as far as I know, she hasn't taught um, a hu- as many men as she has women. But I, I have I do have a lover who took her class a few years ago and and he also speaks about it in such glowing terms about how it transformed the way that he related to his sexuality and exactly what you just described there that I'm doing my dance not for me but for for you like you take what you want from it and I'm not doing this to get validation from you I'm doing this to just empower myself and you in the process and I think that's so powerful like I've in in event producing I've always lamented that there's just not enough male dancers um whether that's doing burlesque or anything else, there, there's, ne- there's never enough. And I think about as much as there's conversations about women's relationships to their bodies and what the media tells us, I think we need more conversation about men's relationship to their bodies because there's this expectation that you can't, you can't, you know, take your clothes off and dance in front of people unless you've got like a, a Chris Hemsworth, like eight pack, <laughs> something like, you know, you yeah. have to meet the, the, the standard of chiseled white man, good looks to be able to do that in front of people. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's such a, like, I mean, it goes both ways, right. For women more than men. And for, for men, I think it's not like you can, because there isn't that society, like men are not sexualized in the same way as women. So men can get away without looking at their body image issues easily, right? In mm-hmm. society. That's that's my thoughts about that as we're talking about this as well, right? So one of the biggest shifts in the last uh, little while that I've been working on this stuff is about how we internalize, you know, all of these ne- negative self-talk about our bodies. And even the, you know, surprisingly, even the, people that you think are really amazing looking in general, right, have this same kind of perceptions about little things about their body, right? And one of the exercises that I did, uh, and it was, it was so interesting, like my therapy and the burlesque class was going through the same topics without having organized them that way, right? <laughs> and, well, so, and the other funny thing was my beginner's burlesque class was on the same day, like a couple hours uh, after my uh, therapy. So one of the days I remember uh, we were doing some body work in my therapy session where you stand in front of a mirror, right, and tell the story of your body to my therapist, right? So I was go- looking in the mirror and looking at different body parts and telling her the story of like, this is, you know, this is what ha- how I feel about this. And these are the stories that go back that has brought me to this conclusion, right? And that was all of that memory and all of that is in our brains most of the time, right? In terms of like, why I don't like my man boobs, for example, right? Because I was teased as a kid uh, over and over again about them. And I, you know, hate that part of myself. Uh, But then the story changed with recent interactions that I had with lovers and, um, you know, and also change in view of my body and how I am, I feel so happy about 
all of the parts of my body now, right? Like a transformation from what I used to think and where that story came from and where I'm at right now. And every, you know, every part of our bodies have those stories and we unconsciously uh, store that in our brains and kind of act accordingly and hate ourselves in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. It's, It's so important to work on that because I believe it's not just body image and how you present yourself to the world, but when you're giving negative attention to yourself in different parts of your body, that's where, you know, the source of then that body part doesn't feel loved and that's where it starts becoming in pain and, you know, disease starts from there, right? Like there, it's so all of the, that stuff is so interconnected. I love that you started an Instagram account for your burlesque personality and <laughs> yeah. there was this fabulous photo that you shared on there and I can't remember exactly what you're wearing, but it's like you're wearing some kind of, I think, fishnets and you've got this very tight pair of booty shorts on and you're angled mm-hmm. slightly towards the camera it's a very coquettish pose mm-hmm. and there was something so confident and sexy in that and everything about that image and i was like this is fantastic why is there not more of this on the internet <laughs> you know it's there was something so beautiful about that and i think about the ways that men's bodies are portrayed in images mm-hmm. It's very rare that you see diversity portrayed. And like I, I have a friend who used to run a secret Facebook group that was dedicated to sharing photos of man candy. Mm-hmm. This is, and and it was it was an amazing like several year experiment until Facebook started censoring it and shutting it down. Mm-hmm. But the biggest challenge that this friend of mine had was finding uh, diversity. Everybody would start to look for things and and it's so rare to see um, men comfortable in their own skin who don't meet that accepted normal stereotype. And I think, you know, the fact that you can have so much confidence in that, that's a testament to the work that you've done. And and this is totally, I see this as part of your counterculture journey, mm-hmm. you know, but like you've, you can be yourself and not have to conform to uh, the expectations of your parents or the expectations of any of the cultures that you've grown up in. And it was like that image to me embodies radicalness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. And yeah, I'm one of the things that I wanted to mention before I respond to that is that I have been so grateful for being supported so uh, deeply by so many people in the community, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. so it was like, it's not, just a journey that I'm doing by myself. Yes, the will and like the persistence and all of that uh, is, you know, I'm grateful to myself for that as well. But I have so many amazing people in my life that are guiding me and helping me along the path. You know, my therapist, my partner, my teacher, Rosie, and all of the other people that are around me, they're just like shining the light back at me. And that makes it easier, right, to go forward with that journey. Uh, Like, I feel like I've surrounded myself with so many of these people that are seeing me and validating me and helping me along. So there's that part. And also exactly like the, the, one of the goals of that photo shoot, like as part of the beginners burlesque class that Rosie does is um, we get a photo shoot with uh, 
with one of our local uh, really great photographers, Misty Moss, who's also a burlesque uh, performer uh, as well. And um, uh, that photo shoot, before that photo shoot, there was some, you know, she was talking about, I want to find uh, and, uh, you know, photograph uh, somebody who can represent the dad bod, you know, like, uh, you know, and for the for the longest time, like I would, you know, not never in my million years in my, uh, you know, that I would think that I could be in front of a camera and, you know, basically modeling, looking sexy and confident. And, you know, between when I didn't believe that I could do this in my, let's say my early 30s to where I am at right now, where what has changed not is not how my body looks, but how I view my body and how confident I am in, in presenting my body. That's the only difference, right? I haven't gone on a diet or exercise or any of that you know, there is the underlying, like, I want to live healthily, right? But I don't want to change my body the way it looks, but I want to change the perception of how I look at my body. And then when, when I'm confident with myself, then it shows and everyone else sees that. Yeah. And that that's that's what I've been learning in this journey in the last little while where, you know, I picked out that picture in, you know, going back uh, maybe even five years, I would never pick that picture because in the uh, the one, I think that the one that you're talking about, I'm sideways where I'm pretty much showing my beer gut, right? Proudly. Yeah. And I love it so much because, you know, I have that confident look in my face and I'm wearing all of the fun things that, you know, makes things look sexy. And also my beer gut is part of that sexy as well, right? And it's just like, you know, one of the one of the things that we in yesterday's intermediate class, right, we were, um, we were going through this exercise of how to take any situation and turn it into being a sexy thing the kind of the life hack here that i've been finding is like it's not about how you look but it's about uh what your presence and your attitude is right you know i it's it's not like a an on or off switch like i'm always nowadays feeling sexy and presenting myself there's like different days where i feel like yes i'm fully embodied and i've i feel amazing and then there's still days where i'm like self-doubting and all of that but at least when i do have those days i know that it's just a phase and it'll change to when i'm really feeling embodied and amazing as well right and goes back and forth oh that's so beautiful and I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned the support that you're getting from everybody around you. I think that's that's crucial and and that's one of the things that I'm wanting to explore in this podcast is not just what is the work that men can do, but how do we support them? How do those of us who aren't men support them uh, without exhausting ourselves? Mm-hmm. And it it sounds like you've got a fantastic team of people supporting you you've got the the support and love of your partners you've got the support of your therapist and of this amazing amazing teacher in rosie bits and and uh, i know that rosie has done some work in in some deep work in understanding sexuality and it it's amazing to see how that comes through in in the dance work that she does Mm -hmm. and uh yeah that you're you're not having to do this journey alone yeah and I think that's really significant because there's a lot of people who, certainly a lot of men I've met who feel that they're 
alone in this, that no one's ever going to love their beer gut, um, that they're, they're just going to have to figure out how to be confident in their sexuality before someone will ever see them as sexy. Mm-hmm. But you've got a group of people around you who can see that you are sexy and are supporting you to see it in yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that I like, I feel really grateful about that part I'm also um, really see, seeing that just by doing this for myself, I'm also influencing other people around me. Like there is at least um, four men that have come over to me and said, hey, I love what you did on the stage and I think I'm going to go take that class. Uh, and so like it, that inspiration is something that's really amazing as well. And uh, the other last two pieces in, in, you know, outside, but it's kind of intertwined as well with burlesque that I mentioned that has really another pillar of my journey has been uh, kink and tantra. Uh, Rosie Bits comes from a tantric background as well. Like uh, most of the uh, intermediate work we're doing is in the context of tantra as well, right? For for burlesque. And Rosie Rosie studied with Davy Ward Erickson with the Institute of Authentic Tantra. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and you know she's still doing a lot of work with tantra herself as as a facilitator and uh, practitioner and having clients and working with them uh, as well as um, she has uh, somebody that she works with one on one as well in terms of her own growth as well. Tantra kind of opens up, like what, what I love about Tantra is that it brings the this all of this that we've been talking about, like sexuality and um, embodying your sexuality, and then also practicing connecting deeply uh, sexually with another person. Uh, all of that stuff comes into the realm of the sacred, right? Where all of that is, you know, in 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 general culture, sex is looked at as a pleasuring event that is, you know, highly desirable, but also kind of dirty, right? In in some ways. With Tantra, we take this to the level of sexuality and our bodies and the connection is a form of, um, you know, consecration where we're actually, you know, generating this sexual energy and can send it out for healing within our own body or out to the universe to all the chaos that's going on and like contributing positively, energetically, right? Where it can be like a form of worship or, you know, making it a much higher purpose than just your, you know, satisfying your carnal pleasures, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really speaks deeply to me. And so, you know, when I'm connecting with my partner and making love uh, and taking it really deep, it's not just for the pleasure of the two of us, but also we can take that energy and send it out to the universe as a form of prayer. That takes it to the level of, from like, you know, mediocre and generic sex to this level of this like amazing blasting through all of your chakras and you know this amazing place which i want for all the people when we're talking about this journey and like what men can do like everyone will have a different journey right like the things that we talked about was like my pillars of how i got to where i'm at right now and i have you know i have a long way to go still like i i feel like i'm only scratching the surface of of this embodiment and you know uh, the work that I'm doing, uh, but every person will have their own unique way of getting there. And 
I, I feel really lucky to be living in this time where there is all these avenues to get there. And where Whether it's working with your local group to bring social justice forward and teach other men how to be consensual and uh, have better relationships with all of their people through that, or whether you're, we're doing it through non-monogamy and you know learning all about that and di- deep diving into emotional intelligence and all of that, or whether it's Tantra to like take that all into the place of worship. Whatever way that we go, there are so many opportunities and things around us in this time. I'm really grateful for that. And I hope all of the people that are looking for this change can find their their way to be doing it in in all with all of these resources that are that are available. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Khan. I'm so grateful for the ways that you are inspiring the men around you and the ways that you are um, fiercely trailblazing your own path. I'm I'm so excited for what the the next chapter is going to bring. Um, I can't wait to to see that. I can't wait to see you perform in person. <laughs> I still haven't seen that yet. I'm gonna have to make it down for a show. Um, June fifteenth is the next one. I'm doing a Bollywood number. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, I'll be in England then. But um, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm so thrilled for your journey, and thank you so much for sharing about that journey with me here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having this platform as well. And I really appreciate that you reached out to me. Yeah, thanks. The Masculinity Podcast is made possible by the support of people like you. Please visit my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash masculinity, M-A-S-C-U-L-I-N-I-T-E-A. Your support means the world to me. And all people who support this podcast get to join our exclusive Facebook group where the conversation continues. Join us next time for more conversations about men, masculinity, and our relationships to them. In the meantime, if you have ideas, questions, or things you'd like me to talk about, give me a shout. Melina at RadicalRelationshipCoaching.ca